Well, good morning. I'd like to invite you to turn with me to the book of Matthew, Matthew chapter 27. We haven't been in the New Testament so far. We've been going through it with our readings, but Steve's been preaching primarily from the Old Testament. And if you, if you haven't been here every week, or if you missed a week here or there, or maybe you're new and you don't know who Steve is and what we're doing, um, go back and look on the website. The sermons are up there. And listen to the first couple of sermons Steve's preached on the Old Testament, uh, Genesis and Exodus. We just finished Exodus last week. And I can say this now because he's not here, so I know it's not going to go to his head. And uh, I know, quite frankly, he's not going to listen to this when he gets back anyways. Um, but Steve has, quite frankly, been crushing it. He's re- I, honestly, Steve has been doing such a good job. He's been so helpful in how he's walked us through the first two books of the Old Testament. I'm actually excited for Leviticus, which is strange. <laughs> you're not... You're not typically excited for Leviticus and Numbers, um, but how Steve's been helping us go through it, it's been exceptionally helpful. But this morning, so that's, that's why I'm, I'm leaving the Old Testament to Steve. We're going to jump into the New Testament, Matthew chapter 27. We're going to begin our reading at verse 11, and we're going to go to the end of verse 26. Matthew 27, verse 11. Meanwhile, Jesus stood before the governor. And the governor asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? You have said so, Jesus replied. When he was accused by the chief priests and the elders, he gave no answer. Then Pilate asked him, Don't you hear the testimony they are bringing against you? But Jesus made no reply, not even to a single charge to the great amazement of the governor. Now it was the governor's custom at the festival to release a prisoner chosen by the crowd. At that time, they had a well-known prisoner whose name was Jesus Barabbas. So when the crowd had gathered, Pilate asked them, Which do you want me to release to you, Jesus Barabbas or Jesus who is called the Messiah? For he knew it was out of self-interest that they had handed Jesus over to him. While Pilate was sitting on the judge's seat, his wife sent him this message, Don't have anything to do with that innocent man, for I have suffered a great deal today in a dream because of him. But the chief priests and the elders persuaded the crowd to ask for Barabbas and to have Jesus executed. Which of these two do you want me to release to you? asked the governor. Barabbas, they answered. What shall I do then with Jesus, who is called the Messiah? They all answered, crucify him. Why? What crime has he committed? asked Pilate. But they shouted all the louder, Crucify him. When Pilate saw that he was getting nowhere, but that instead an uproar was starting, he took water and washed his hands in front of the crowd. I am innocent of this man's blood, he said. It is your responsibility. All the people answered, His blood is on us and on our children. Then he released Barabbas to them. But he had Jesus flogged and handed him over to be crucified. Let's just bow our heads and pray for a moment. Father, this is a passage that I know fairly well. I recognize it easily. Easter comes around every year, and we hear passages like this read. Sometimes our familiarity can be a problem because I skim over stuff. I know it so well, so I'm not going to read it closely. I'm not going to pay attention. Lord, I pray that this morning, that as we look in your word, that these words that are familiar would be alive to us today. That we would see clearly what Jesus is doing. That we would see clearly what you're doing. That we would see what is going on in this passage. And that Jesus would be praised. That Jesus would be glorified. That we would be excited about what Jesus is doing, what Jesus has done. We thank you for this time that we can spend together in your word. We pray that your spirit would move, that your spirit would open our hearts, open up our eyes, help us to praise Jesus as he deserves. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen. Meanwhile, Jesus stood before the governor. 
we're jumping in. We're jumping in in verse 11, halfway through a chapter, really. And you'll recall from your personal knowledge of the New Testament, or at the very least, because you're all wonderful Christians and you've been keeping up with your daily Bible readings, that the governor is, of course, Pilate. We know who the governor is. The natural question to ask when we pick up reading in verse 11 is, why is Jesus standing before the Roman ruler of Judea? Why is he standing before Pilate? Most of us, being familiar with the narrative, being familiar with the story, we know how to answer the question, even if we're a bit fuzzy on some of the details. Why is Jesus standing before Pilate? Well, in short, because he's been handed over by the chief priests and the elders, by the Jewish leaders. Verse 2 of chapter 27 tells us they, that is the chief priests and the elders, bound him, led him away, and handed him over to Pilate, the governor. There it is, right in the text. This is why. This is no accident, and it should not come as a surprise. We're in chapter 27. Stuff has been happening up until this point. If we've been reading carefully through the Gospel of Matthew, we know from Matthew chapter 20 that Jesus told his disciples exactly how things were going to go down, exactly what was going to happen. Verses 18 and 19 of Matthew chapter 20. We are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the teachers of the law. They will condemn him to death and will hand him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified. On the third day, he will be raised to life. So this, what we get in Matthew chapter 27, is exactly how Jesus said it was going to happen. What is going on is exactly as Jesus said. He's already been handed over to the chief priests and the elders, and now stage two of his prediction is coming true, being handed over to the Gentiles, to the Romans. And they bind him. An unbound prisoner does not exactly say bad guy. When you want to be taken seriously in front of a judicial court, you try to do as much as you can to make it look like a serious case. They bound him to give Jesus the appearance of being a real criminal. If we've been tracking through with Matthew, we know that the things that the chief priests and the elders are accusing him of just simply aren't true. But Pilate doesn't know that. And it's very important to them that their case against Jesus isn't just cast aside or swept aside. So here stands Jesus before the Roman prefect, the governor, the judge, the one who holds his hand or his life in his hands. And he asks the question, are you the king of the Jews? What we should immediately notice, considering the context, because we've read this, is that This is not the question and accusation that the chief priests had against Jesus. If we go back to chapter 26, it's probably on the same page or a page before, verse 63, this is what it says. The high priest said to him, that is Jesus, I charge you under oath by the living God, tell us if you are the Messiah, the Son of God. That's the problem that they have. Sometimes we, in our our minds, we, we take all of the titles and all of the names and all of the things that are true about Jesus, and we, we smush, them, smush them all together into one big ball of awesomeness, of who Jesus is. Okay? Jesus is the Messiah. He's the Son of God. He's the seed of the woman from Genesis 3. He's the Son of Man. He's the Lion and the Lamb. He's the Son of David. He's the King of the Jews. He's all of these things, and we sometimes take all of those things and we just interweave them and overlap them. We don't see what each individual thing actually means. We don't make the distinction. And all of those things are true, and you can't talk about Jesus in a full sense without talking about all of them. They're all true, and they're all important. But the question Pilate asks is not the same as the Pharisee's question. It's not the exact same. So where does Pilate get the question from? Because he would understand the question differently. He would understand this question in a different light. What he hears when he asks the question, are you the king of the Jews? He's asking the question, are you the political leader of the people of Israel? That's the question that Pilate is asking. And that's a very different question from, are you the religious leader of the nation of Israel? Those are two very different questions. It's not how Pilate would have understood it. Luke's account of the narrative, Luke's account of this story, gives a little bit more insight into how this question actually pops up. Luke records these words in Luke chapter 23, the first couple of verses. Then the whole assembly rose and led him off to Pilate. 
And they began to accuse him, saying, We have found this man subverting our nation. He opposes payment of taxes to Caesar and claims to be Messiah, a king. Here we see where Pilate gets the question from, where he gets this idea that Jesus is the king of the Jews. He gets it from the Jewish leaders because they've changed somewhere in their communication to Pilate. They've changed their accusation, their real problem that they have with Jesus because they want him killed. Their initial problem is a religious issue. It's a religious problem. His claim to be the fulfillment of the Old Testament prophecies was their real issue. But Pilate wouldn't care about the religious squabbles of the people he's ruling over. He just wouldn't. He, just doesn't, he doesn't care about the religious stuff. So to give their case some legitimacy, they turn it into a political squabble, a political accusation, because they know they're able to gain a hearing with Pilate only on the grounds of politics, not religion. Pairing this with the fact that they bound Jesus shows us how seriously they wanted Pilate to take them. How badly they wanted Jesus killed. How badly they really wanted Jesus gone. Are you the king of the Jews? Now there's something interesting about that phrase. Once again, we sometimes skip over it. But where else have we seen this phrase in Matthew's book? King of the Jews. We actually, surprisingly, we haven't seen it for the better part of 26 chapters. That phrase. The chief priests don't ask this question. Remember, that's not their accusation. We need to go back to Matthew chapter 2 to actually get that phrase. And once again, another passage we all know. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, Where is the one who has been born King of the Jews? We don't see that phrase again until we get to Jesus' death, until he is standing before Pilate. The question that the Magi ask is not, who is the one, but where is the one? We know he's been born. Where is he? Matthew draws our attention to the fact that he's been born in David's city, Bethlehem. That's not an accident. It's not a coincidence. What Matthew does at the very beginning and at the end, what he does is he ties Jesus directly to David at his birth as the Davidic king born in the city of David. And then he also ties it again, at Jesus' death. To be in the line of David, to be born in the city of David, to be the son of David, which that phrase actually pops up a number of times in Matthew. So you have king at the beginning and king at the end, and tied in the middle, son of David, which to be the son of David is to be king. To be king is to be the Messiah. So when we read Pilate asking the question, there should be no doubt in our minds that Jesus is actually that king. Matthew's mapped it out for us. What do you think about the Messiah? Whose son is he? The son of David, they replied. That's Matthew chapter 22. And to be the son of David is to be king. Are you the king of the Jews? We answer yes. We know that answer to be yes. But Jesus doesn't answer with a simple yes. To answer with a straight yes or no would have been confusing the matter. Remember, he's standing before Pilate. To answer with a simple yes, Pilate would have understood that question. He would have taken that to mean that Jesus was claiming political leadership, that he was claiming to be the one who should be in political control. To answer no would have been misleading because although he's the king of the Jews, he's not just king over the Jewish people but he's king over every tribe, tongue, people, and nation. He's the king of the world. He is king, but he's not merely a king in the political sphere. Are you the king of the Jews? You have said so. It's an ambiguous yes. It's a qualified yes. Yes, Pilate, I am king, and I am king of the Jews, but I'm also king over you, and you really have no idea how big of a king I am, what kind of a king I am. Jesus is indeed the messianic king of the Jews, the son of David. Matthew's mapped that out for us if we've been reading carefully through his account. When he was accused by the chief priests and the elders, he gave no answer. Then Pilate asked him, Don't you hear the testimony they are bringing against you? But Jesus made no reply, not even to a single charge, to the great amazement of the governor. 
Jesus has already answered the original question, the original accusation. Are you king of the Jews? You have said so. And now he stands there, silent, as the accusations from the chief priests and the elders are thrown at him more and more. Why doesn't Jesus answer? Why didn't he say anything? Why does he make no reply to their accusations? For a couple of reasons, I think. One, and we've already sung about this, it is a direct fulfillment of Isaiah 53, verse 7. Direct, obvious, clear. This is what it says. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before its shearers are silent, so he did not open his mouth. Direct, obvious, clear. And what we need to understand is that Jesus is not simply a religious martyr. He is not merely a good man who died for the cause. And he's not only a fulfillment of Isaiah 53, but of the whole Old Testament. Remember Steve mentioned that last week? The book of Exodus is all about Jesus, including Leviticus and Numbers. That's why you should be excited about reading Leviticus and Numbers. Jesus is the seed of the woman from Genesis 3. He's the provided sacrifice from Genesis 22. Remember Abraham and Isaac, the sacrifice? He's the Passover lamb from Exodus 12. He's the tabernacle from Exodus 26 to 31. He's the lamb of Isaiah 53. He is all of those things. You know the game Bigger and Better? Anybody ever played that game? Bigger and Better? You ever heard of it? Youth groups, okay. Yeah, the, the Power to Change guys, they, they played it. Okay, great. Um, it's, it's a game where you start with something small, a pin, paper clip, pencil. And the whole goal is, is to go around and knock on people's doors and annoy people into trading your something small for something bigger and better. So you start with a pencil and you trade it in for a piece of paper. And then you trade your piece of paper with somebody else for a plastic cup, and then you trade the plastic cup for this, and then that, and then that. We actually had somebody come back to our youth group one time with a broken down snowmobile. They started with a paperclip. I have no idea how they got a snowmobile in the back of somebody's truck. It was amazing. You start with something small, and you trade it in for something bigger and better. What we need to see is that the small things in the Old Testament, a substitute for Isaac, which I'm sure Abraham did not view the provided sacrifice as something small. But really, that, that substitute, it's small. It's just a picture. It's just something, something small. And when we get to the New Testament with Jesus, we need to trade it in for something bigger and better. At the risk of sounding cliche, Jesus was not caught in the wrong place at the wrong time. He was in the exact right place at the exact right time. He was where he was supposed to be. The second reason why I think Jesus doesn't actually say anything, why he doesn't answer, is because he would have crushed the opposition. Because he would have actually been proven innocent. Had he given a defense, he would have proven definitively that there was nothing they could hold against him. He would have picked apart the Jews' accusations and he would have been set free. But remember... He's in the exact right place at the exact right time. He opposes payment of taxes to Caesar. That's actually just a lie. <laughs> you don't even have to get into interpretation. That's actually just a bold-faced lie. Remember those words in Matthew chapter 22? Jesus, he says this. Remember, the, they come to him asking, should we pay taxes to Caesar? Jesus sends them out and gets the coin. He says, whose inscription is on this coin? And it's Caesar's. And then Jesus says these words. So give back to Caesar what is Caesar's and to God what is God's. Pay your taxes. Jesus says that. Jesus has witnesses that this accusation just actually is false, just actually isn't true. So why doesn't he speak? Why doesn't he tear these accusations apart? Because there is a bigger plan. There's something going on bigger and better. Defeating the power of death and sin and crushing the head of the serpent from Genesis 3 is a far greater feat than giving a perfect defense at his trial. It just is. Now, it was the governor's custom at the festival to release a prisoner chosen by the crowd. At that time, they had a well-known prisoner whose name was Jesus Barabbas. So when the crowd had gathered, Pilate asked them, 
Which one do you want me to release to you, Jesus Barabbas, or Jesus, who is called the Messiah? For he knew it was out of self-interest that they had handed Jesus over to him. There's something interesting about, you may have a little footnote next to the word Jesus, Barabbas, Jesus. There's uh, some manuscripts don't have the word Jesus, some manuscripts do. The NIV, which we typically use here and that Steve preaches from, it includes Jesus Barabbas, which I think is uh, the right inclusion to have it there. If, if, you don't, if your version, whatever translation you have, doesn't have Barabbas, it's not wrong. It just means that the translating committee decided that they didn't want to have it there. Uh, there wasn't enough evidence for it. But I think in this case, it, it makes sense. The crowds have gathered. That's no accident, too. There are no accidents when it comes to Jesus' life. Because the governor's custom, we're told this specifically, of releasing a prisoner at the festival. That's, that's why they're there. They've gathered because they know that they're going to have somebody released to them. The text tells us he is a well-known prisoner. We're not told it specifically why, but if we pair that together with the other gospel writers, he's well-known for insurrection and rebellion against the state and for murder. He's a political fanatic. He's a political leader. He was most likely a a hero in the eyes of the Jews because he, he led revolts against the Romans. So, most likely, the crowds have gathered to ask for his release. He's the guy that they want back. Most people don't even know that Jesus is on trial. Remember, his trial before the chief priests and the elders took place during the night. And then it was early in the morning that they brought him before Pilate. Crowds aren't out there. Nobody's there yet. Nobody has any idea that Jesus has actually been taken prisoner. They're not there to ask for Jesus. They're here to ask for Barabbas. So they're gathered to ask for the release of Jesus Barabbas, and they are posed with this question, do you want Jesus Barabbas, or do you want Jesus, who is called the Messiah? It's interesting to see the question Pilate is asking actually runs much deeper, on a different level, than our surface-level reading in English. Barabbas means son of a father, or son of the father. Rabbis were sometimes called father, so perhaps Barabbas was the son of a rabbi. Now, we don't want to make too much out of this, or read too much into it, because Jesus Barabbas was his name. Barabbas was his name. You don't want to read theology into somebody's name. Because my name is Jacob, and Jacob means deceiver. So I hope you're not reading too much into my name and too much theology into my name. Grasper of heel in the KJV. We don't want to read too much. But I think Matthew's readers would have heard, or they would have read the question and heard it in this light. Do you want Jesus, the son of a father, or do you want Jesus, the son of the father, the Messiah? Do you want Jesus Barabbas, your failed political war hero? And he has failed. He's in prison. He's not very good at his job. He's been in prison, so he's not all that successful. Do you want that guy? Or do you want Jesus Messiah, your religious and spiritual leader? Remember what Steve walked us through last week as we went through Exodus. He actually did the overview of Exodus, which we didn't think was possible, and Steve crammed it into 40 minutes. Moses tried to do God's provisional work by himself. Remember when Steve said that? He said, what happened when Moses killed the Egyptian? He was trying to do God's work of freeing the Israelites from the Egyptian oppression. And he ended up spending 40 years in the desert tending sheep as a result, trying to do God's work by himself. Israel does not need a mere man to fight the power of the ruling government, whether it's Egypt or whether it's Rome. Israel, both in Exodus and in Matthew, they need a God to provide. They need the God to provide. Israel needs God to bring about the Exodus. That's what they needed in Exodus. Kind of why we named it Exodus. They need the great Exodus out of Egypt. What they need is Moses, a man, to get out of the way and let God do his work. So too here in Matthew, what Israel needs is not another failed rebel leader. Israel needs God to do his work of the bigger and better exodus. That's what Israel needs. 
Pilate knows that Jesus the Messiah is only on trial because of the Jewish leader's self-interest, because of their envy. That's why their accusations about Jesus would have changed when they handed him over to Pilate. Remember how they, they had to swing it in a political way, make it a political matter. Pilate knows they're not really concerned about threats to Roman rule, like someone claiming to be king. That's what their, that's what their accusation against Jesus was. This man is subverting the government. He's causing problems because he's claiming to be king. Pilate, for all of his downfalls, I don't think was a moron because I think he understood that if they actually cared about a guy who was going to take over Rome, they wouldn't want a hardened criminal, a murderer who leads revolts against the Romans, set free. If they actually cared about what they said they cared about, They wouldn't put Jesus forward to be crucified. They'd put Barabbas forward to be crucified. Barabbas is the real threat, not Jesus. Jesus poses no political threat in any way whatsoever. Jesus is innocent. Even Pilate's wife can see that. That verse almost seems disjointed, kind of thrown in there. What in the world is this here for? When Pilate was sitting on the judge's seat, his wife sent him this message, don't have anything to do with that innocent man. For I have suffered a great deal today in a dream because of him. Now for the second time in a matter of verses, we're drawn back to the beginning of Matthew's gospel. Where else have we seen dreams before in Matthew's gospel? At Jesus' birth. God speaks to Joseph multiple times through dreams, and he also speaks to the Magi from the east through dreams, telling them not to go back to King Herod, take another way. You remember this? Everybody remembers this? Dreams are used by God in certain circumstances to speak and give instructions to his people or to other people. And we're not told the content of the dream, but through this dream, she comes to see that Jesus is innocent. The English word that we have, innocent, is often translated elsewhere in the New Testament as righteous. So other translations will read this have nothing to do with that righteous man. Instead of innocent, it just says righteous. It's just a translation choice. And I point that out because understanding why the NIV would choose the word innocent, because Jesus was indeed innocent, right? Can we agree on that? Jesus was indeed innocent. But beyond that, I think being righteous, biblically, is different than simply being innocent. To be innocent is to have done no wrong. Being righteous means you have done everything right. Not just that you have a blank slate, you have a slate with all of the good things on there. It's different. And on top of that, elsewhere in the New Testament, in Acts and in 1 John, Jesus is specifically referred to as the righteous one. It's a messianic term. To be the righteous one, to be the righteous man, is to be the Messiah. So what we have here, from the words of a Roman lady of standing, which is amazing, is a warning to her husband not to get any more involved in the trial of that righteous man, the Messiah. She interrupts the judge on his judgment seat to intervene for a Jewish peasant. She has no idea who Jesus is, really. This pagan woman is open to the voice of God through dreams and can see the innocence of Jesus and that he is indeed a righteous man, but the Jewish leaders and authorities are deaf to it and can't see it. She somehow, because of God, proclaims, so this verse, once again, no accident. Matthew records this verse, I think to help us understand that even from the words of a Roman lady, Jesus is the Messiah. I think that's what we're hearing. That it's not just something that Matthew's compiled together. It's not just something that um, we come to on our own, but that through God's Word, and in that 
in this specific case, it was something different. But even a pagan lady can see Jesus as the Messiah. But the chief priest and the elders persuaded the crowd to ask for Barabbas and have Jesus executed. That's where your mind should just kind of go, wait a minute. She gets it. She may not understand what that means, but she, she said it. That righteous man, that's, that's the Messiah. Have nothing more to do with the Messiah. And they don't get it. It probably didn't take much convincing to ask for Barabbas, because remember, that's probably what they're there for to begin with. They're there to ask for his release. So most of their work of convincing probably went into asking for Jesus to be executed. Which of these two do you want me to release to you? Asked the governor. Barabbas, they answered. At this point, we should have all seen this coming. And sometimes, because we already know the story and understand what's going on, uh, we know that that's the obvious answer that they give. That's what they were originally there for. What shall I do then with Jesus, who is called the Messiah? Pilate asked. They all answered, crucify him. In their response, they are declaring they'd rather have a failed political second Moses and a national war hero, failed war hero, over the Messiah. That's what they're asking for. They'd rather have Barabbas than the one their entire nation has been waiting for. They would rather have man instead of God. They'd rather have the failed Moses who spent 40 years after his failure tending sheep. They'd rather have him than the God who provides. Why? What crime has he committed? None, actually. At this point, we should all understand none. But they're beyond the accusations at this point. Crucify him. Pilate, I think, would have been stunned at how the events of the trial have gone. He got caught up in a whirlwind, and now he's in too deep. He supposed, I think, he would have supposed that for the Jewish leaders to be jealous and filled with envy, that Jesus would have had to have a great number of supporters among the people. Why else would they be jealous? It just makes sense that if your leaders are upset with you, you've probably got a lot of guys who are happy with you. Why else would they be jealous? You don't need to be jealous about somebody you don't know about or that nobody likes. Right? You're not jealous of the person you don't know about. You're just not, because you don't know who they are. Pilate supposed that they would have had to have been all there supporting Jesus. All of his attempts up until this point to release Jesus have backfired. Now they're calling for his crucifixion. When Pilate saw that he was getting nowhere, but that instead an uproar was starting, he took water and washed his hands in front of the crowd. I am innocent of this man's blood, he said. It is your responsibility. In his actions and his words, Pilate is communicating to the Jews that he sees the execution of Jesus as unjust. That what they're calling for is actually unjust. He's spineless, because even though he knows something to be true, his wife has actually affirmed it in his ear. He doesn't believe it in a way that he would actually set Jesus free. He's got a mob to please. He's got the people who are knocking on his door to please, but enough so that he uses a Jewish custom to attempt to absolve himself of all responsibility. Washing hands was not, in a ceremonial way, was not was not a Roman custom. What research I did, there was, there's apparently no historical evidence that Romans actually washed their hands in that way. So what Pilate is doing is actually using a Jewish custom to tell the Jews, I'm out. This, this has nothing to do with me. He's communicating to the Jews in their own language, using their own law. This is all on you. I am innocent of this man's blood, it is your responsibility. Once again, and this is, this is one of the neatest things about Matthew and the neatest things about the Spirit as he's inspired the Word for us. It's not the first time in Matthew that we have phrases and themes recorded for us. 
specific phrases. Earlier in the chapter, in verse 4, chapter 27, verse 4, Judas wants to return the money he's received for betraying Jesus. Do you remember that? Remember, he, he accepted money to hand Jesus over to the chief priests and the elders, which is exactly what Jesus said would happen. And now he feels guilty and he wants to give the money back. He wants to try to pay back, atone for what he's done in betraying an innocent man. And this is what he says in verse 4. I have sinned, he said, for I have betrayed innocent blood. And this is their response, the chief priests and the elders. What is that to us, they replied. That's your responsibility. The chief priests and the elders say the exact same words to Judas. Once again, I don't think a coincidence. What is interesting is that they don't try to show Judas that Jesus is actually guilty. What they could have said there, after Judas says, I have betrayed innocent blood, what they could have done was said, no, look, Judas, he's not actually innocent. What they actually say was, that's your problem. That's your responsibility. You've gotten yourself into this situation. And in that response, affirming that Jesus is innocent. Here, Pilate, knowing Jesus is innocent, he tries to pass the responsibility to the Jews. And they, this being the crowd, remember the crowd's now been riled up, they willingly take the responsibility on themselves. All the people answered, his blood is on us and on our children. That's a hefty thing to say. That, I don't think I would ever, in different contexts, different culture, sure, I don't think I could ever, in any situation, ever take the responsibility for doing anything and wish that upon my children. Wish the responsibility. Take the responsibility, not just on yourself, but on your children as well. And what I think this means is they, that is the crowd, because it's the crowd's response. The chief priests have, have changed their tune and made, it, made the crowds ask for something, really ask for what the chief priests want. But it's the crowd's response at this time. And what I think this means is, in their response, I don't think they truly believe Jesus to be an innocent man. The crowds, the chief priests and the elders, They know Jesus to be innocent, but they've convinced the crowds otherwise. They did not see his righteousness. They are 100% guilty of sending an innocent man to the cross. No doubt about it. But I don't think they're doing so thinking he's an innocent man. Because, can someone conceivably take the responsibility, not just on themselves, but on their children as well, take that responsibility for the unjust killing of a righteous man? Could they? I think they'd have to be insane to actually do that. You'd have to actually be nuts to say, this guy is innocent, he doesn't deserve to die, but we're going to call for his execution and our children are responsible. That's just logical. how, How do you say that? Unless they don't see Jesus as an innocent man. Remember Paul. He... He... He expressed, he wrote, he told his personal testimony a number of times through the book of Acts. And remember, Paul had a similar state of mind when he hunts down and imprisons the followers of the way, as Christianity is first called. He believed he was acting righteously. He believed he was doing God's work. He thought he was doing God a favor. He didn't actually see Jesus to be innocent until Jesus kicked him off his horse and told him otherwise. What I think this means is, apart from the gracious work of the Spirit of God in the heart of an individual, there can be no understanding. There can be no comprehension. There can be no sight. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, The person without the Spirit does not accept the things that come from the Spirit of God, but considers them foolishness, and cannot understand them because they are discerned only through the Spirit. You need the Spirit to know Jesus, to see Jesus. We cannot understand the things of God apart from the Spirit of God. And I think that should prompt two responses. 
Firstly, I think it should cause us to have understanding and compassion for the lost. We should not laugh and scoff when the blind don't know where to go. When a blind man cannot see the path that he should be on, you shouldn't laugh when he's not on it. Right? How are they supposed to know? And even more, we should not shake our heads in anger and frustration when the dead man doesn't get out of the coffin and walk. Because that's, that's what we're described as, apart from the Spirit of God. That's what the Bible tells us about who we are, what we are like spiritually apart from the Spirit of God. We are dead in sin. Dead. You can't get around the word dead. Dead means dead. The world apart from the Spirit of God is a valley of dry bones. And the only reason there is anyone who has life is because the Spirit of God has come and given it to them. Do you agree? That the only reason you sit here this morning redeemed by the blood of the Lamb is because the Spirit of God has given it to you. The Spirit of God has given you understanding and insight into who Jesus is. You see Jesus for who he truly is because of the Spirit of God. The cry from the mob should remind us that if we are indeed redeemed by the blood of the Lamb, that we too were once in the place of the crowd. We too used to be in the place of the crowd, not seeing Jesus for who he truly was because we didn't have the Spirit. And what is fascinating and utterly amazing is that as they cry for his death, unjust, as it is, as they cry for his death, it is the very thing that they cry for that they need. The very thing that they cry for makes it possible for them to be forgiven should they repent. Their death, their death, Jesus' death makes it possible for them to be redeemed. They need his death if they are going to be forgiven for putting him to death. Has that thought ever struck you? That doesn't make... Oh, hold on. That's confusing. They need Jesus to die if they are going to be forgiven for putting him to death. The crowd had no idea what was actually going on. They had no idea what they were actually doing. And I don't think the chief priests had any idea what God was actually doing. Pilate and the Romans, as responsible as they are, they had no idea how their actions were going to be used by God. And I think not even Satan himself knew what was happening in these moments as the crowd called for the death of the Messiah. Not even Satan knew what was going on. Because if he did, if he knew that the death of Jesus would have paved the way for his resurrection and the ultimate defeat of sin and death, if Satan got that, I think he would have done everything to prevent it. I think he would have done absolutely everything to shut up the chief priests, to shut up the crowd, and to get Jesus released. Remember, that's not Jesus' point. Jesus could have easily gotten himself out of this sticky situation. He could have been easily proven innocent. He's actually been proven innocent multiple times in the text already. And yet there's something different going on. Satan had no clue what was going on as he incited the chief priests to get the crowds to ask for the death of the Messiah. Crowds had no idea because they were blind and did not have the Spirit. The second response to all of this, I think, when we recognize that it is only by the Spirit of God that we see, when it is only by His work that we are given sight, when we understand that Jesus is the Messiah, not just the Messiah of the Jewish people, but of the whole world, of you and me, because unless you're an ethnic Jew, You're only here today because Jesus died for not just the Jews, but for the world. When we ourselves have been given the Spirit of God and we have turned in repentance and faith and gone all in with Jesus, our response, we need to bow our heads and worship. Steve said, I don't know if it was last week or a couple of weeks ago, you can't talk about salvation, redemption, and not end up in worship if it's true of you. And he went so far as to say, if you talk about redemption and you don't end up in worship, you need to ask yourself if you've actually been redeemed. 
you can't talk about life through the Spirit and not end up in worship just like you can't talk about redemption and salvation without ending up in worship. We need to lift up our hands and our voices in praise. We need to see, and this is one of the coolest things in this text, I think, one of the neatest things. We need to see that we are the spiritual version of Barabbas. Barabbas really has no significance in this story other than being there. Look at verse 26. Then he released Barabbas to them. Barabbas wasn't innocent. He wasn't a righteous man. He had done actually everything wrong. But he was set free. He was let go. His bonds were broken and taken off. Why? Because Jesus took his place, literally. Jesus was swapped out in the place of Barabbas. Imagine if you were Barabbas. If you were awaiting your, your execution, three crosses have been fashioned for Barabbas and his fellow rebels. The other two guys, if, if you read robbers, robbers really isn't the right understanding of that term. They were rebels as well. They were probably cohorts with Barabbas. Three crosses have already been fashioned. How, how else do you explain that within a matter of minutes, Jesus goes from on trial to all of a sudden hanging on a cross? Because these crosses have already been fashioned and set up. The execution was planned to take place. It was literally moments away and Barabbas deserved to be on that cross and instead Jesus was there. If you're Barabbas, you know that this day, literally moments from now, you're going to be executed. And we're not given any indication that Barabbas has any idea what's going on outside of the palace. He's in prison. He's not privy to these conversations. The guards come in and instead of hauling you off to your death, they take the chains off and let you walk out the door. The Bible is filled with shadows, imagery, pictures, things that represent something greater and something better, something bigger and better. Steve's helped us understand that and see that in the first two books of the Old Testament. Jesus is the bigger and better tabernacle. The tabernacle is a picture. It's, it's, it's a shadow to help us understand when we get to Jesus what Jesus is actually doing. The Bible's just chocked full of this stuff. And we see here, in the middle of the gospel story, so now we're, we're at the bigger and better, we're at the gospel story, and yet, in the middle of it, just before it, we still get a picture of what the gospel actually is. We still get a shadow, an illustration, to help us understand what the gospel is. Do you want to know what the gospel of Jesus the Messiah is? Look at Barabbas. A man who deserved nothing but death is given life instead because Jesus took his place. That's the gospel, right? So too, you and I, we who deserve nothing but death, is given life instead because Jesus has taken our place. That's exactly what the gospel is. Barabbas is just a shadow. He's just a small... It's just something small... Barabbas is the little thing in the Bible that helps us understand the bigger thing. And yet Barabbas probably didn't view it that way. Walking out of prison that day, not hanging on a cross, pretty big thing in his mind. And yet, something small, something that doesn't really matter because the Messiah has come and broken the chains of sin and death itself. Bigger and better. Spiritual and eternal life. And if that does not bring you to worship, you need to ask yourself if you ex have actually experienced the greater exodus, the exodus from death into life. This story, this account, this passage is not about Barabbas. It's not about the crowds and their foolishness and their blindness. It's not about the Jewish leaders and their envy and their sin. It's not about Pilate and how spineless he was. It's about Jesus the Messiah, the Lamb of God, the Son of David. It's about the King accomplishing the will of his Father. If we read this passage and think that Jesus was a guy caught in the wrong place at the wrong time, you've sorely misunderstood what Matthew was doing. You've sorely misunderstood what Jesus is doing. If we only feel sorry for the injustice Jesus was put through, you've missed the point. The point is, 
is that God the Father has a plan and God the Son is on a mission to fulfill that plan and no one will stop him, not even Satan. Because Satan, for as dangerous as he is, has no clue what God's doing. He's fighting. He's not an easy opponent. But not even Satan, who thought at this moment, as the crowds cried for the crucifixion of the Messiah, Satan, I wonder, and I don't know, and I don't care to ask him personally, but I think he probably would have thought, aha, I've done it. Aha, I've won. Jesus will be put to death, and that'll be the end of it. I've beaten God. I think that's probably what he would have been thinking. Which is amazing to think that even in Satan's actions, God's not going to mess up. God's not going to be denied his purpose and his will. And if Satan's not going to stop that, you sure don't have a chance of doing that either. And that's a great comfort. That God's plan and his purpose will come to fulfillment no matter what. The God who provides in the Old Testament is the God who provides in the New Testament and the God who provides for Barabbas right here in a physical way will provide for you spiritually if you turn in repentance and faith. That is the beauty of the gospel. That is the beauty and amazing truth of this passage. God provides. It's not just a cool theme in the Old Testament that, wow, look at that. Abraham almost killed his son and God provided. That is neat. Sometimes that's as far as our Old Testament readings go. When we've got our little flannel graph thing teaching Sunday school, God provided the ram and God provides for you too. And amen. The God who provides the sacrifice lamb in the Old Testament is the God who provides the sacrificial lamb in the New Testament. And it's for you. It's for you. Does that truth draw you to worship? And, and that's in a different way for each and every one of us. Hopefully it's in singing in some capacity. Worship can be bowing your head in prayer and in utter awe that God would care about you. Sometimes it's lifting your hands and praising God and you just can't shut up because it's been such amazing what God has done in your life. I'm going to ask that the musicians come up and ask that you don't shut up and that you are willing to sing in praise and adoration of what God has done in Jesus Christ for us today.